Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sangam Namasami The Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is something that you can use for life. And I just want to talk about the different qualities of metta and why metta is a wonderful thing to combine with the practice of jhana. Metta means goodwill, but it's closely related to the word mita, which is friend. So it also means friendliness. And you may have heard the word kalyanamita, which is a beautiful friend, a spiritually beautiful friend somebody that you can trust and who will support you. And in this particular context, metta is something that we develop towards ourselves and we're strengthening that so that we can go back into the world and be true friends more and more. As we develop the Brahma-viharas, we can develop that quality and manifest that quality not just to people we like, because through the jhanas we're developing equanimity. So metta is a brahma-vihara, that means it's a sublime abiding. You can know that just from the interviews, quite a few people have talked about how much your thoughts are still coming in strong and, and how we're learning to sweep them aside. But when there are thoughts of anger or ill will or resentment, they're so sticky and they, they've got so much momentum in them, especially if we have issues of not forgiving and we feel remorse or angry at ourselves or at somebody else. It, it creates a lot of weight. It's like a karmic weight in our hearts. And metta is the excellent salve for that. When we start to experience piti in the practice, that's when there is a softening around these emotions. And samadhi itself is often known to be emotional balance. It brings about that kind of greater, deeper balancing out of these tidal waves of strong emotional habits so that we can just be rejuvenated from the joy of the mind, the pure mind, the purified mind. So it's a Brahma-vihara. It means Brahma refers to the very high beings. And as we develop that kind of abiding, a joyful abiding, it's difficult to bring up, you wouldn't want to bring up, who practices hatred intentionally? It's just not, anyway, I I shouldn't, I I don't know. (laughs) I, I don't think I do, but sometimes one really has to work hard to, overcome that. So when there is joy in the heart, that's contagious. And hatred is also contagious. 
which is why we need an antidote for it. And metta, the more we develop it and perfect it, we decondition the hatred. We actually can uproot it eventually, and that's that's what this practice helps us to do. It's to uproot the poisons of the mind. So those hateful feelings, that's the far enemy of metta. It's quite far from metta, so metta is like the antibiotic for hateful mind. But how hard is it to insert that? We have to cultivate it. Like you can't just stick a tulip in the ground and say, grow. It has to be planted and watered and put in the right conditions, the right soil, the right sunlight, and don't stare at it too hard. (laughs) Give it metta and it'll grow. And what a joy it is at this time of year to see those little crocuses and green things just popping out because they were planted. So if we make a suggestion to the mind, then it's planted. We've put in a seed, and when those hateful tidal waves come, it's like we have a toolbox and we quickly scramble around and pull out, ah, I've got this this little meta shoot and I'm just going to grow it. It's very difficult to grow it in negative conditions or in hostile conditions. And that's why this is such a wonderful, it's like a Petri dish for metta, right here. We can grow strong feelings of loving kindness, of goodwill. If we can't, love is such a loaded word, and that's probably why goodwill is something we might be able to get our heads around. Yes, I can offer some goodwill to that person, even though really you might feel like you want to strangle them. But that's not useful for someone that's trying to purify the heart. You would never physically do that. But even if we were to think that, whatever is in our mind is going to come out in our speech and in our actions. Don't we all know that? So that's why what we're doing is such a valuable practice. It's valuable for us, it's valuable for the whole world, because the ripple effects of how we will improve, and this is another aspect of metta I wanted to bring up, that there are ethical aspects of metta all by itself, even if you don't subscribe to precepts or rules per se, but if you believe in the power of loving kindness and forgiveness, that alone has an ethical weight to it. It will help us to perfect or to purify our thoughts, speech, and our actions. And that's really important for this practice. If we want to deepen spiritually, then metta is like a polish for all the paramis, all the perfections. Dana, sila, vidya, panya, nekama, which is renunciation. That's another aspect of metta. And then the wisdom and the kanti, patience. Oh, that's such an important quality. And the determination, that kind of resolve that we, this is medicine. It's spiritual healing, spiritual wholeness to bring forth. And then, of course, metta is one of them, satcha, truthfulness. That's so important. How hard it is to really admit, to say, oh, I haven't done something skillful. Because we want to look good and we want to feel good about ourselves and we want 
our friends and people we respect to approve of how we are. That's a very big goad in the monastic life. When we live in community, we have all these mirrors of other people, and we can't hide anywhere. We are just so raw in front of everyone. And we see each other's cracks. But because we try to cultivate this attitude of metta for ourselves and each other, there's just so much compassion. This is how we are, but we don't want to stay this way. We want to progress and grow like that little crocus in the spring. We want to reach our full potential. And then the, the last of the paramis that metta polishes is equanimity, upeka, which is the springboard, the field in which we can cultivate the practice of awakening, developing the knowledge that will give us the right factors to bring about the path and the fruit, the completion of the Eightfold Path, the fulfillment of the Third Noble Truth, the cessation of all our anger, our grief, our ill will, our disappointment, our sorrow, our suffering on every level. So metta has that ethical quality in itself. It helps us to purify our actions, our speech, and our thoughts. So that's its one ethical component, and it's called charita. And the other ethical component is varita, which means the principles of abstaining from things that are the enemies of metta, being nasty or mean, even mean thoughts. Because if you work all day with colleagues and somebody could walk through a door and just close it a little too hard, and you know that they're not happy. And maybe that was because you said something or didn't give them the document they wanted immediately. So, and, you know, and that reverberates. So then we feel that kind of vibration. And that vibration stays in the body and maybe gives us some tension. Very difficult when that person comes back through the same door not to give them a look. So then the vibration that we received, which created a kind of ill wind in the heart, comes back as a bit of an ill wind. Unintentional in a way, but it's causes and conditions. We're just so reactive. We can't think fast enough to get that, go in our medicine kit and, where is that little pill of metta I can swallow quick? But if we can remember metta, and I'm going to talk about this, the principles of abstinence or restraint, we've already talked about how important it is to have sense restraint. And that means also keeping guard of the mind by using mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, and also the principles of moral shame or moral fear, which we look back on our actions, we review, just like at the end of a sitting, you review your practice and you see, well, how did I get this joy? And then you try to repeat that. That was the step that Ajahn mentioned yesterday in the Four Steps to Success, the Idipada, that at the end you investigate. You don't want to be thinking a lot, but certainly reviewing what led to this good result or what is bringing up this hateful 
mood in the mind that's preventing me from being with the breath, then we can try to remove that, prevent it from arising again, and work on watering the seeds of metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, and mindfulness of the moment, present moment awareness, not leaning into the past or jumping into the future, not strangling the object, balancing our energy, focusing on it again, and calming the breath, stilling the mind, so that the joy will bud again and brighten us. So those four steps very much mirror what we're going to be covering today, how you can apply this medicine of metta. It's interesting, the word medicine and meditation that must have a similar root, and it's like we're self-doctoring. And we have the Buddha, the greatest doctor of all time, a universal doctor. And metta is called a universal principle of harmony and love. And in the Dhammapada, you may have read, hatred is not overcome, never overcome by hatred, but by love alone. Forgiveness, metta, friendliness, compassion. This particular teaching that I want to cover with you is from the Anguttara Nikaya, which is the numerical discourses of the Buddha. And there's a beautiful, most recent translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi, so he puts it in a contemporary English. I got this from a Sri Lankan publication that was put out many years ago, so the translation is a little bit different. I'm just going to read it to you and then try to cover the salient points for the jhana practice. It's called The Blessings of Metta. Monks, when universal love which he's referring to metta as universal love here, leading to liberation of mind. Take note, this is not just jhana, this is liberation of mind. Is ardently practiced, developed, unrelentingly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well consolidated and perfected, then these eleven blessings may be expected. What eleven? One sleeps happily. One wakes up happily. One does not suffer bad dreams. One is dear to human beings. One is dear to non-human beings. The gods protect one, the higher beings are attracted to us and they want to protect us. No fire or poison or weapon can harm one. One's mind gets quickly concentrated. The expression of one's face is serene. One dies unperturbed. One dies unperturbed. And even if one fails to attain higher states, one will at least reach the state of the Brahma world. That's wonderful. Monks, when universal love leading to liberation of mind is ardently practiced, developed, unrelentingly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, 
made the foundation of one's life fully established, well consolidated and perfected, then these eleven blessings may be expected. I'll go into that in a moment. I just realized I never really told you about the Varita principles of renunciation, and you're, you're taking them because when you're on the eight precepts, you don't eat afternoon, you don't go to shows and sing and dance and frolic, wear jewelry and adorn the body, and you don't indulge in sleep too much. And as you notice from the practice itself, you don't need to sleep as much, except if you're suffering from a cold or other kind of illness, you may have some weakness in the body, but it does, it brings in so much energy. So that's a power of metta. The other thing I wanted to mention before speaking more to this teaching from the Buddha, there's another sutta, it's called the Simile of the Saw, sutta number 20 in the Majjhima Nikaya, very often quoted sutta, you may have heard this. The Buddha says, His standard of metta is this. Even if bandits were to sever you with a two-handed saw, (laughs) limb by limb, and if a, a hateful thought were to arise in your mind, then you would not be following my teaching. That's the standard that the Buddha gives us. I remember the first time I read it, I just couldn't imagine how difficult that would be not to hate the person that was trying to saw off the limbs. <laughs> Maybe it's pretty close, terror and hatred. Some years ago I was living in New Zealand and eventually became a citizen of that wonderful country. I was walking down the street on my way to the monastery. There's a a very lovely monastery there associated with the Ajahn Chah monasteries and I was going to teach a retreat. And I was walking down to the train, to the retreat, and this car stopped. And these people got out and said, are you Buddhist nun? And I said, yes. How did you know? Oh. (laughs) Well, and so they had this pile of books in their car and they said, we have a book for you. I was so astonished. They were Tibetan Buddhists. And they handed me this book, and it was about a Tibetan Buddhist nun. And then they drove away. So, <laughs> and It was called Sorrow Mountain. Have any of you read it? It's a true story. It was written by a journalist, and it was written maybe 15 or 20 years ago. And I don't think she's alive anymore, but she died quite recently, and she was very old when this journalist interviewed her. She had spent 20 years incarcerated in China in a prison, and they arrested her because she was a nun. So she was practicing her religion, which at that time was still completely taboo. So many stories about nuns and the torture and... This particular nun, bless her heart, they used to hang her upside down by her legs. And she tells the specific tortures, remembering this from the Buddha's teaching on the simile of the saw, she would be chanting the refuge in Tibetan, Bhutang Saranam Gachami, like when you take the eight precepts and you chant refuge in the Buddha, refuge in the Dhamma, and refuge in the Sangha. So she kept chanting those words 
and the guards would get so angry at her and they would beat her to shut up. But she didn't, she just kept chanting. So they taped her lips shut. And she told the journalist, they couldn't stop me because inside she continued chanting even though she couldn't move her lips. It came out in the interview when she was asked, she said, no, I bear no hatred towards those guards. No hatred. So the Buddha did give a standard and there are beings who have been able to do that. This is an encouragement to us to strive in this direction. If we incline our minds, that's why the power of intention is either for wholesomeness or unwholesomeness. And if we set our mind on a particular goal, on a particular trajectory, on a particular path, this is an ancient path, a wonderful path that the Buddha discovered. And the path is within us. It's not out there somewhere. Just like the suffering, we think the suffering is out there, the suffering is in us. We also think the happiness is out there. The happiness is in us. That's the key, is to know that whatever difficulty or depression or discouragement or disappointment that we experience, the medicine for that is within us. Of course, this is where I bring back the word Kalyanamita. The Buddha also said, spiritual friend, is when Ananda asked him, Lord, a spiritual friend is 50% of the path. You may have heard this before, isn't it? And he said, say not so, Ananda. A spiritual friend is 100% of the path. But what I discovered is that it doesn't mean that we always go and rely on spiritual friends when we're down or we need a, a shoulder to lean on. Because eventually when we learn the practice and we develop the skills to meditate properly, to still the mind, to bring forth the joy from within, the stillness from within, the equanimity from within, the balance, then we can be a friend to ourselves in a a most exalted way. And then the Buddha becomes our best friend. And his teaching to us is the path itself. We listen to the teaching and we see, okay, I can take one more breath. I can take one more step. And that's how I've been surviving through my 29 years in the robe. So let me get on with uh, the specifics of what we just listened to together. So the first thing is to practice metta in an ardent way. And the Pali word is asewita. It means ardently. And that's like chanda. That's what the, uh, the I almost said the Buddha, sorry, Pante, the, our dear Venerable Ajahn. But it's the Buddha's words. You know, when you speak the Buddha's words, it's like the teaching is alive. The Buddha is here with us. So, um, asewita is to ardently, you have that chanda, you really want to do this. Even if your mind is yelling at you, old voices coming back, old ghosts haunting us, we just let the sound 
of the teaching, turn the volume up on that, and it's going to drown out those old echoes and reverberations that we're used to hearing. In fact, maybe at some negative kind of level, the residue of that is comforting to us. At least we're alive because we can feel something. But we can do much better than that. We can completely subdue those vibrations with the purity of this good will for ourselves. That much we can do. And as long as we have a foothold on goodwill, we're on our way up the mountain. It might be steep, but it's just one breath, one foot at a time. And that gives us the courage to take another. Whether we're young or old, educated or not educated, whatever country we're from, whatever height, dimensions, attributes, whatever we have, it's our equipment, it's karmic. We just get on with it. Because the real suffering is in the heart. The physical, the body will do what it does. We could be at death's door and still awaken. It's never too late to cross that gap to the farther shore. So ardency, making it like the philosophy, the guiding principle of our life. I'm just going to keep working on goodwill, not ill will, because ill will is the enemy of metta, and it's also a great hindrance on the path. And we've all had the anger, hatred, self-hatred, self-disparagement, criticizing somebody else, whoever it is. We've all been there, done that. What else can we do? And this is the else. This is the something else we can do. It's not something else. It's exalted, an exalted choice or option. The second one, by the way, that already, that chanda, affects our attitude It affects our conduct and our speech. We're going to start being much more careful because we're on new ground. We're not that familiar with this. Maybe it's a little intimidating. Is there a bandit waiting with a two-handed saw? Maybe we're scared that we're going to have to be cut to pieces because it hurts to uproot all those years and years of or lifetimes of conditioning. And then there's bhavita. Now, probably many of you have heard the word bhavana to develop the path. And this bhavita is develop metta. Develop it. We have the ardency for it. So now we're on the virya, the second step of success, is to develop it. And we learn how to do that. We, We develop the skill to bring, as soon as we notice a vibration of ill will, ill wind blowing. We can smell it. We can taste it. We can really viscerally feel it. So just bring in that antidote, that medicine, to introduce a good will. Like you see that person that was coming through the door again and you don't have a good feeling, but right then and there, awareness and just know this person works really hard. Find one good quality to help change our attitude. So that'll help change. Offer a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, anything. A a paper clip. (laughs) 
it's it's not expensive but to abide in anger is very expensive it's toxic it's really pollution it doesn't give us any spiritual oxygen at all we can't even breathe we're crowded out of our heart with anger it's so poisonous this developing of metta brings about the unification of mind it's the precursor for samadhi Actually, goodwill is an aspect of every wholesome mind state. Every wholesome mind state will have goodwill in it. So metta can easily be brought in, developed, and then that helps the samadhi to get momentum. So we really want to transform ourselves in this way so that we can get the benefits of our meditation practice. The next one is bahulikata. And I know this word bahu, bahula, because when we do confession as monastics every two weeks, we purify our conduct and speech. We have 311 rules. There's over a hundred of them that are confessible offenses. And if we've broken any of them, we just need one other nun who's in good standing to listen to... I broke that plant over there and I dug the soil I might have killed a little worm and they're not major ethical rules but they damage our purity so it's like taking out the garbage every two weeks we do keep a very high standard of purity and then it's so cleansing and it's so reaffirming to be restored just by letting somebody else bear witness and listen to an admission of I wasn't up to standard. If you repeat an offense many times, the word bahula, sambahula, it's, it's the word for many times. So, bahulikata. But this is the opposite. This is the perfecting. This is unrelentingly resorting to. This is the proper resort. We don't want to cross the creek. As Ajahn told that lovely story about the quail, wanted to go to the other field and the fox ate it. So if we don't give our heart to the practice of metta, forgiveness, tolerance, acceptance, softening, it's just softening that ill will, that ill wind, and putting the shutters against it. If you close the window, to, we couldn't the other day. The wind was so sharp. But we have to do it fast because if the ill wind gets a footing, then we could fall off the mountain. Now we're climbing, right? So bahulikata is unrelentingly, like continuously keeping the metta going so that if something comes up, we don't react in our old ways. We've picked up the practice. We're very eager, ardent, zealous, devoted to it. Then we bring up energy towards it, we develop it, and then we try to be continuous. And you've heard these kind of instructions in terms of the practice of mindfulness and how much that can conduce to concentration and focus and stilling the mind, calming and stabilizing. So it happens incrementally. But once it takes off, many of you have already experienced that kind of shift where things just fall into place. And how miraculous that is. 
Okay, this is a really lovely one. It's called Yani Kata. Yani, Yana. This is a Mahayana or Kinayana. It's a vehicle. Make metta your vehicle. And we're developing all our spiritual powers when we're doing the Bahulikata, many, many times resorting to that safe place where metta is the antidote to the poison, the toxic waste of years of conditioning where we allowed, we didn't know, we allowed ourselves to have smoke coming out of our ears. And there's a residue of that charcoal in the heart, in the mind. But now we're polishing it with metta and preparing the powers of faith, energy, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom to know this antidote is a vehicle. And we put together the axle, the tires, the steering wheel, the upholstery, the the engine, and we're giving it the fuel of metta. And it's starting to chug along, little by little. We're going down the path with this practice of goodwill, of a loving heart, a kindness. Kindness is so available to practice. And love is a, a more of a loaded word. This can affect our interpersonal relationships. Number one, it can affect our relationship to ourself. And number two, it can affect how we are with others. And so that's our whole life right there how we are with... Maybe we take it out on on our dog or on an insect. How dare you get in my cootie. We have ant problem. We have to talk to the ants and take them out one by one. (laughs) Because we're not allowed to kill any living thing. Carpenter ants, they're so intelligent. And if you don't take them for a long walk, they just come right back in. At the end of the winter, they were already back. So you're slipping on the ice and trying to carry this ant to a place where it won't freeze. And so uh, under the house, there's a porch and there's earth and they can crawl in. Uh, Anyway, so so the yanikata, using the vehicle of metta and making metta the only mode of communication that we use. So we try to avoid hostile speech, sarcastic speech, uh, gossip. That's anyway in the precepts. But this is the ethical power of metta in our practice. Because even though we're in silence, there's a whole lecture going on in the head, a constant commentary, an editorial. And it's pretty slick speech. It's so convincing. We keep falling into it and buying into it. And we have to take great care of what we listen to. To somehow remove that from our psyche and use this loving kindness, this loving accepting the medicine into our heart and applying it, like filling the mind with it so that nothing else has space to get in, to sneak in because those old voices have a way of blowing in like an ill wind. But we keep a seal on our mind so that this is the only way we communicate to ourselves through metta and to others. If we remember someone in our practice, 
and we have some fear or some grudge against that person, but if we're using this as our only vehicle, it just falls away. It has nowhere to land. It's like a plane that suddenly you give it different coordinates and tell it to try over there, and it it disappears. You give it the BPS, Buddha's Positioning System, (laughs) instead of the GPS. It's so familiar with sitting in our own heart, and even though we haven't got space for that hateful feeling anymore, we're just sick of it. But we still repeat it and repeat it. Now, we're constantly repeating this refrain of metta. Some of you may have done this practice. Pick four phrases that appeal to you. If you don't have a feeling for Pali or don't particularly care for it, use your mother language because that will really deeply penetrate into the psyche. May I be well, may I be happy, may I be free from anger, free from suffering. May I be peaceful. Over and over and over until you really can go back to that deeply present state of mind with a samadhi. It's building, it's power, it's it's joy, it's energy. And the mind is becoming brighter and the metta is polishing it, polishing it. And then we can see so clearly because metta working together with the five faculties, the five powers of the mind, the bala, and using the idipadas, that the mind is filled up with knowing this loving quality and having it fuel our ability to have a firm and stable focus on on the breath or on the heart or just on the quality of of love of true universal feeling of no separation from anything in the world from anyone that brings the mind to unity as the buddha himself said one's mind gets quickly concentrated quickly unified gone to unity that ekakata So there we're still on Yanikata. It's a divine vehicle. Is it called divine abidings? You're sitting in this divine vehicle. And we have a right. The Buddha gave us an inheritance, like parents give an inheritance. He's like the universal, the most sublime parent, doctor, gave us this medicine, this inheritance. We have inherited it, we have a right to sit in this divine vehicle and travel in. It's an inward path. So then there's watukata. Watukata means making it a foundation for our life. So first it's a vehicle and then it becomes a shelter for us. It's not just a vehicle that you get in and out of, but it's actually like a shelter and the ekata is a bit like the peak. You know how a, a peaked roof has... Because if the peak isn't on, then the rafters, the rest of the building won't hold together. So this meta quality, if we use it as a foundation for our life, then we can actually live within that shelter of meta. It's a protection. You can be homeless and still be safe with that kind of mind, with that kind of heart. As the Buddha said, 
one of the blessings is that no fire or poison or weapon can harm us. So what if a bandit is waiting with some kind of weapon at the end of the drive on the way home? But if we have metta, I'll just quickly tell you this little story, but it really happened to me. I was working in Senegal when I was a laywoman, and I went on a holiday to the Casamance, which is in the south. And it was in broad daylight, and I was walking from the airport to the house of a friend who lived right near the beach. And this young guy followed me. And we came to a place where there were no people, and then he attacked me. And he starts ripping off my clothes. And so I started chanting. I wasn't a nun yet, but I was a little strange, I guess. (laughs) I started chanting, and he said, what is that you're saying? And I I tried to use his language. I said, I'm praying to God to help me because nobody else will. And he he was so shocked, he just stood up and he threw my shirt, whatever he had, on the ground. He said, okay, I won't touch you. And I looked at him, I I couldn't believe it. And he said, no, I I won't. And um, he stood back and he said, okay, what have you got in your bag? I remember this well because I've told this story a few times. (laughs) I have $200 and my passport. And he said, okay, give me money. And I said, I can't give you money, but I can give you forgiveness. What religion are you? He said, I'm Christian. I said, okay, why don't you go to church and ask for forgiveness? He said, can you give me 25 cents? (laughs) I have to give it to the priest. So I gave him 25 cents and he went away. I'm telling you, the power of forgiveness is... I became a nun, it was about a year later. Not because of that. (laughs) I was already inclined in this direction. So, we can live in that safety. It's a safe... It's a safe place. No one will harm you. Um, So, the next one is Anutita. And that refers to being rooted to metta. It's just like we're tied to it. Not only do we live in it in a safe way, like when we're just alone, or but wherever we go, wherever we circulate, we're tied to it. And so it's not spatially restricted, like you're in a safe place if you just sit in the hall and meditate and practice metta. But wherever we wander, if we stay rooted in the heart to this metta practice, it takes root in us and it grows. And the effort, the vayama, the effort, changes to a virya, an energy. It's effortless. It's no longer having to instruct ourselves, to coach ourselves and goad ourselves into doing it. We already figured it out and see this is so powerful And we know that this is the thing to hold closest to our hearts and to keep feeding ourselves on metta. You know how we feed the body very well, but this is food for the heart. And just like the Dhamma, it's the best food for the heart. This is another aspect of holding the practice. So effortlessly, most important is we make fewer 
mistakes, where there are less times when we resort to the old ways. We're really pretty skilled at it. So we learn doing the vimangsa step. We've done so much adjusting and going back to eradicate or expel or extricate ourselves from a hateful mind state and apply the metta potion and again offer ourselves to that practice. We've done that so many times that now the heart just goes there, knows it. So we have a skillful use of it. And that's rooted to it. Then there's the parichitta. It's P-A-R-I-C-I-T-A. It's not double T. And it refers to the skill, the skill of it. The skillful use of it. So we're rooted to it, we're anchored in metta, and then we have this expertise in it. And we can readily, like somebody could come and shout at us and say something really unpleasant. And we would be able to not react. So this will deeply affect our conduct. Day-to-day practical practice. And some people take this metta practice that I will abide in a heart of loving kindness all the time for the rest of my life. And there's a precept in Burma, they actually give the nine precepts and the ninth one is the metta practice, like this. So it's really profound and I know people that have taken it and they are so chilled. (laughs) It's just really wonderful to see. So then the last one is the susamarada. Susamarada. It's the perfection of metta. So the perfection of metta It's like a perfect spiritual quality. In that, there would also be the whole teaching about how metta leads to the jhana. Metta is an entry point into the jhana. So if one has perfected this level of wholesomeness, the mind is really, really pure, and one can abide in a deep, deep level of samadhi. So very equanimous. And from there, one can go on to develop the other jhanas. So metta is a, a true friend. It's like the, the Four Noble Truths in terms of friendship. You see the suffering, you see the ill wind, and you know the poison of it, so you know the origin of it, and you know to abandon it. That's First and Second Noble Truth. But we don't stop there. Then we know the cessation of it by continuously practicing it, then we practice it more, we develop it, we keep doing it over and over. I didn't mention that about the Bahulikata, is that more and more and more, pile it on. You know, like we might do with cake at the end of the line. But this is the sweetness of this spiritual quality. We just pile it on. So this is actually developing the path with metta. Then that covers right view, right intention, because we understand what it means to transform our conduct and speech, what it means to live wholesome life and to practice wholesomeness towards others in the heart. So right view just about the human predicament and how we want to go beyond suffering. So we use the metta. Then right intention is setting our course like you would with the GPS. It's a BPS course and it's powerful. And then 
we have the realization, the perfection of metta, that's actually having the citta completely with metta all the time. Nothing else can get in there. So that's really the Four Noble Truths right there in one word, one thought, one intention, one breath. We just start and we keep going. We never turn back. No matter what happens, that bandit could really be out there. I've talked about this in the monastery because we hear so much about terrorism. And we're just old women living in a monastery together and we have no protector. But we have the Dhamma. So I think, well, if somebody were to show up in the meditation hall with a rifle and say, okay, ladies, this is it, I would say, well, may you be blessed or try to bring up some metta because this person doesn't know the danger they're going to, the karmic consequences of what they're about to do. It was very not good karma to kill bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you this one more story. This happened in a Shaker community, or an Amish community, sorry. A milkman came in and shot these ten little girls, and five of them survived, and two of them were sisters. And I think one of the sisters that survived, or, or one of the girls that survived, told the story how one of the girls that died, they were five years old, these kids. And she said to him, shoot me first. How amazing that she could say that to this deranged person. Shoot me first. I've contemplated that so much over the years, just as a way of meeting a terrifying moment. How to do that? Can we receive it, really? Not with fear, not wanting to run away, just receive it then we could die with metta. The body would die, disappear, but the mind would be held with metta. And that's an opening for arahat possibility. We could get full awakening. We could thank the gunman for the opportunity. It's a fulfillment of the path. I'm not inviting it. I'm just saying this practice would cover all conditions. We do want to prepare for death and we don't know how we're going to die or when or where. So to be in this kind of a vehicle, in this kind of shelter, in this kind of security, all the security in the world, all the security in this country, all the health insurance, whatever other measures we do to try to make ourselves secure are not going to work the way this shielding the heart from the harm of the inner poisons. That is how we can fulfill the path to awakening. That's the greatest blessing that we could realize. And so I think that's what the Buddha meant when he said, Monks, when universal love leading to liberation of mind is ardently practiced, developed, unrelentingly resorted to, that's our resort. 
That's where we want to stay and be. Encompassed by, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well consolidated and perfected, then these eleven blessings may be expected. What eleven? One sleeps happily. One wakes up happily. One does not suffer bad dreams. One is dear to human beings. One is dear to non-human beings. The gods protect one. No fire or poison or weapon can harm one. One's mind gets quickly concentrated. The expression of one's face is serene. One dies unperturbed. One dies unperturbed. And even if one fails to attain higher states, one will at least reach the state of the Brahma world. Monks, when universal love leading to liberation of mind is ardently practiced, developed, unrelentingly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well consolidated and perfected, then these eleven blessings may be expected. So, to die unperturbed, to die in peace. We want peace to bring the liberation into peace of heart. And even if one fails to attain higher states, to be reborn in a higher Brahma realm where we can realize the deathless from there. So uh, I offer that for you as a contemplation for the retreat.